Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within, and like the phoenix, enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest, Jimin Han, the writer of the novel A Small Revolution, tells us about the heartbreak of losing her mother, a loss that created fissures in her family felt even today. With great sensitivity and honesty, she tells the story of this life-defining moment as one that taught her and continues to teach her about her inner strength. This uncovered strength helped shape her second novel, but also how she has navigated the many relationships altered by her mother's passing. Please welcome Jimin Han. Welcome Jimin. I start the show off with just one question. And the question that I ask everyone is, was there an event in your life, personal or professional, that was challenging and that might have changed the direction or course of your life? That is such a great question. And um, thank you so much for having me. Juliana, it's always fun to talk with you. And I always learn so much. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, you always ask great questions. You know, I remember years ago when I was talking to you about a small revolution and you said, you know what? I think you need to go back in. I don't think you're finished yet. Remember, it was a really rainy day. Yes. We're going to uh, an event at NYU. Yes. And so in, in answer here to your question, I have so many answers, but I was trying to think of which one changed my life the most. And I'd have to say that in terms, especially about my relationship to the world, to other people, to my writing, it has to do with my mother's death five Mm. years ago. I know I need more time to process it, but I would have to say that her death made me feel the most untethered to the world. And it also finally got me to edit my novel. And Mm -hmm. this kind of voice emerged as I was dealing with her illness and then with her death. Um, And that ended up being the voice of the novel in terms of my relationship to writing now I just feel like I have no time to sit in those decisions of should I or shouldn't I disclose these kinds of secrets or talk about how I feel about certain things. I feel that much closer to my own mortality. She was also someone who didn't want me to talk so much about family and you know, I write fiction, as you do beautifully too, in, in a shred of hope. But you know, some of the themes are ones that come from my life. And they were um, really hard to write about while she was alive. So can you tell us what she died of and if she had had a prolonged illness? She had a stroke 
that came from her heart. There was a clot that came from her heart. And um, before that, she really did have difficulty with her heart and it was misdiagnosed. My father's an internist and he kept thinking that she had something wrong with her lungs because she was just really slowing down and having trouble breathing. So that went on, you know, she was 80 when she had the stroke. And so for a good, probably four or five years before she, she had the stroke, she was just not as healthy as she'd been in the past. That was all something that took, it just took a lot of energy. I spoke to my mom every day and then, um, then she had the stroke and then she, there was a lot of upheaval in our family and my father ended up taking her to Korea in hopes that she could regain the use of one side of her body. You know, it was really hard for us because then we couldn't see her and then she died there. But because she died there also, it made us travel as a family to Korea again in this crisis. So it was just lots of different thoughts about that. But So you made a reference to the fact that you found a voice as a writer. And I'm assuming that you found a voice that was a little bit more assertive. And so I've always had this belief that when a parent dies that in a sense, we really kind of step into our own, that as sad and as tragic as the loss is, there is a sense of, wow, we are no longer children. We don't have that role. We are truly ourselves in the world and thinking that you are pretty much alone. So is that kind of what you experienced when you told us that you found this voice? Yeah, exactly. I think that it was a voice sort of pared down. I think that as writers, you know, we want to make complex characters. We want to live in the nuances of feeling. And what I was caught up with too much was trying to, it was just too dense, I think, in a lot of ways. And I think that when my mother was ill, it was just very clear what my priorities were. I was much more in touch with my rage, whether it was at my father for choosing to take her to Korea or whether it was about anything else that was going on. I couldn't be thoughtful about all sides anymore. When my book came out, I was 50. So I was, what, 49, 48 when I was dealing with all of this. And it just made me feel, I mean, that's late. I think a lot of people feel those things probably in their 20s as immigrants. And for me, In particular, my mother was a physician in Korea. So when we moved here, she no longer practiced. And I think that there was a big part of me, no matter what, that really was caught up in trying to, um, you know, I was terrible in science and math, but in trying to make up for something that she had given up for us. And so when you talk about the rage, can you kind of go back to that place. So I know when I experience extreme anger, it's almost like a visceral physical reaction that I have. But once the rage passes or the anger passes, there's a sense of depletion. So do you feel as though you're still holding on to the rage or that you've now let it go and you can feel that sense of release? I think what it taught me was that for many years, I had made as many in my, I'll just speak for myself. I had made a lot of concessions 
And I feel that after my mother died, I was able to see more clearly how I should be more protective. I mean, Mm -hmm. as writers, we need to be more protective of our time and our uh, sort of emotional and mental space. All of that just became much clearer to me. What are the concessions that you make reference to? Can you give us an example? I think that when my mother became ill, my father, for example, as he had always been, and I think in our family, he was the doctor. He was the one who made our lives possible in terms of economic security. He was also a child of the Korean War. There was a lot of story around his horrific childhood and his losses. And while my mother had uh, terrible losses as well, her family was intact when it came down from the northern part of the peninsula. So I, I think that even when I disagreed with my father, I had not really confronted him in constructive ways. We would have arguments. I would get upset. And then I felt compelled to return and appease him in some way and keep the peace because of my mother. So I think he became so important, even when she got sick, that made me so angry. People who have different personalities than I do would have responded differently. But I was always praised for being a person who could find the right words to deal with an argument. Or if I could just be reasonable enough, he would see my point of view. And I think a lot of energy went in that direction. And so after all this happened, it just became more clear that my mother died and he was still the one who was going to demand all this attention from us. I felt the loss as a child. I felt like saying, you know, you lost your wife, but I lost my mother. My father has many wonderful qualities as well. This was just our family dynamic that it just took me a long time to grow out of. And so you mentioned the fact that your mother passed away in Korea and you didn't really have that final goodbye. Is that something that still haunts you? Yeah, I was on the plane. I heard that um, she was probably not going to make it. And I got on the plane and she died while I was in route. You know, it's like a 14-hour flight. So mm-hmm. that was hard. Um, I did go with my family to see her. She died in October. We went in the summer. I did see her and I did feel that it might be the last time. That, 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 that was hard. Um, at the same time, you know, the, there's a lot of Korean folklore and mythology around death. Um, my mother, growing up in like sort of rural area of the northern part of Korea, she talked about it a lot. And so I, I feel that a lot of the lessons that she was able to teach me, I feel that I still carry her with me. Was she buried in Korea? Here's the interesting thing. She was cremated because that is, I think, the more common practice nowadays. I think you still probably could. Uh, Someone corrected me recently and said it wasn't a law that you had to be cremated. Mm -hmm. But what my father ended up doing was having her cremated. And so part of her ashes are in an urn in Korea in a um, little 
they have these buildings with these shelves. And I don't know if you probably see in the K-dramas where you'll see like <laughs> beautifully decorated compartments with mm-hmm. urns and you can put pictures and things in there. So she's in one of those with her mother, with my grandmother. And then I was able to bring some back with me because my parents had bought a burial in Virginia where they lived the last few years. So she's, she's there as well. Oh, that's nice that you have both, actually. You kind of mentioned briefly, and I'm sure that this isn't surprising to any of us, but that you feel your own sense of mortality and how time becomes so much more precious. So can you talk about that in terms of how that's affected some of your decisions or the way that you approach life at this point? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's so timely because of this pandemic. Everyone's probably a little more in touch with that than before. This Mm -hmm. last year, for me, it meant, well, first of all, literally, I had some health issues right after my mother died. And they also involved my heart. So it was sort of an interesting kind of um, symbiosis. Yeah. Right. And then also our dog died. And tortoise died. So there was a series, (laughs) a domino effect. Having my heart sort of, it slowed me down completely, sort of having to deal with that. And I had to think about not doing some of the things that I'd done before and focusing more on, on what I needed at the moment. So in terms of writing, I realized this was really important to me. At the same time, my older daughter was graduating from high school and going to college. My younger one was starting to apply to colleges. And that had always been sort of in my mind, right? As a mother, what do I want my children to learn from me? And what I wanted them to be able to say is, yes, my mother did write the book she wanted to write. And publishing was not, I mean, I don't want to say it's not important. It's important but I also know there's a lot of chance involved in that, a lot of luck. And what was more important was that I accomplished what I needed to do. So you got to tell the story you wanted to tell. Yeah, I wanted them to see that. I didn't want them to feel as I had felt with my mother, that they somehow had to do something to make up for anything. So can you tell us a little bit about the second book? It's love to. It's a fictional version of story of my great aunt on my father's side. And I had fun with it because it's kind of wacky. It gave me a place to put some of the folklore that my mother had told me about, Mm. about death and about time. I started it before the pandemic, but during the pandemic, I got to really lean into what I thought about running out of time. She's 105 years old. She's still alive? No. Oh, okay. I'm like, Jim and you have good genes. <laughs> we do. Have you seen that Korean Vogue where they featured all these Korean women over a hundred? Yes, I saw that. Hanboks and gardens. Yes. Um, mine is more feisty. She's a, a, she's a great aunt who made a big impression on me when I was about 10 years old. And so I have a character who's sort of like me in the book also, but very minor. And it was just fun to 
inhabit this world where this 105-year-old would have lived through so much and was still busy trying to accomplish a lot of things before her time here was done. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you told us that you're a fiction writer and obviously I am as well, and that people always make assumptions that the stuff that you write is so biographical. Uh And the way I like to describe the way my fiction works for me is taking glass and shattering it. And so that it's the shards that you'll find in the story that may be elements of something from my life, but it's not the totality of me. Do you feel that way when you're working? That's a great metaphor because it kind of talks about, I can imagine it's about the process because we really do have to go in and writing is so difficult in that kind of way. It feels like that kind of shattering. I think that for me, it's based on the story. So in a small revolution, it's segmented fiction. So it literally the parts that came last had the most to do with Yuna's personal life. Like I really feel that um, the, the stuff about her family came last. With this new book, it didn't feel so much like that. It felt more like I got to kind of retell a story that I got to be much more outside of it. She's nothing like me. And so I feel like I was much more outside the story and letting this character just talk to me. So can we go back to your relationship with your dad and him making, I guess, all the executive decisions where your mother's care and so forth was concerned? Have you been able to reconcile any of that in your mind and heart at this point? It's hard because I'm still kind of in the mode of um, protecting myself in a way because he takes a lot of energy. I think we all have people in our lives who do that. They mean well. They can talk about themselves and their issues. It's just that he's a wonderful friend to people. He was a wonderful physician. He was just a really difficult father. I think children and as parents, we know children need different things, no matter how old they are. He's really angry with me. I did not behave the way that I had, even though he would not say I was like the model child. I think that not only was his heart broken by my mother's death, but he feels that we didn't treat him the way that he probably deserved to be treated in terms of letting him do everything he wanted and applauding him for it, you know? Right. I don't know because until he feels that he wants to talk about it, I can't do any more work there. Well, that's a fine line, right? That you're sort of straddling. I mean, I can see how you finally stepped into, well, this is how I feel. This is what's important to me and drawing very clear boundaries, probably in a relationship where you never got to do that. And then at the same time, the reality of his age and his own mortality, does that ever weigh on you that you won't get that opportunity to kind of clear the air with him? The reality is he has a lot of support. We still have a lot of family in Korea that have Mm -hmm. given him so much support. And my brothers are very supportive of him. And he's in touch with my cousins. He's by no means isolated. 
And he's even been welcomed to return and he may return to the States. If he needed me, I would absolutely be there, of course. I I, just have to be on my terms. (laughs) I I guess the question I was asking is, do you ever feel that sort of emotional internal struggle of wanting to hold on to your feelings, which are incredibly valid, but at the same time, perhaps worrying about his passing and he not having that moment to kind of reconcile and clear the air with one another? I know this is a concern. It's like, Cousins asked me this too. I feel like he knows what I'm about. He always has. He knows that I love him. He knows that if he needed anything from me, I would be there to help him. I don't know that anything like that has to be reconciled. And he said to me once a long time ago, maybe the very few first days after my mother got sick, he said he knew that I was a person who would be able to take care of her. And he trusted me on that. Yet he just can't help himself in terms of doing all the other things he had to do. I think he knows who I am. If I felt that he didn't know, that'd be one thing. But I think it kind of played out inevitably the way that it had to play out. Can you talk about a moment when you're with your mom and she was facing her illness where you kind of really saw the beauty and the preciousness of life as you watched her struggling? Um, Wow, you ask difficult questions. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I think there were many moments. She had so much to tell me even when she was really sick. I remember there was a night I was so tired. We, I, I was spending nights there in the hospital with her. And I was getting that thing where that sundown syndrome where I didn't know if it was morning or night or day. I was <laughs> in the hospital 24-7. And, and she was just talking. And I said, Mom, I'm going to sleep now. I'm going to sleep. And she just kept saying, well, one more thing. I, I have this other thing I need to tell you. I wish I'd recorded her. I wish I had been able to stay up and listen to everything else she wanted to say. I look back and I I wish I'd been able to spend those moments. I wish I just said, absolutely. And now tell me exactly what do you want me to do when this happens and that happens to you? And she could have sat my dad down and told him exactly what she wanted so that we weren't so busy saying, no, you'll you'll be here with us forever, mom. You know, I, I would just say, have those conversations and listen when your parents are telling you, this is what I really want. It's such a poignant thing to sort of express. So does that make you feel time passing in a more urgent way? Yes, absolutely. I feel like like every day is so precious. And I don't know how I ever just assumed. I knew sort of, I knew the idea. I knew that, of course, you don't know what's going to happen. A friend of mine um, died in February. He died of a brain tumor. And so he knew his time was limited. It was the most aggressive kind. And we would joke and I would say, okay, yes, you have the brain tumor, but you know something could happen to me tomorrow. It's not necessarily the case that you're going to go before me. I kind of feel that every day. How is it that we just assume life is just going to go on? And yet we have to make plans. 
that's the best way to live is to, to make those plans. I just didn't feel it quite the same way before. But sometimes that urgency creates this false need to move, move, move. Have you seen the flip side of that where the preciousness of time also has made you slow down? All of this is kind of intersecting with this time when my, now we're empty nesters. You'll find like time opens up in these big ways. You don't have to plan your meals. You don't have to drop everything if your child needs you, comes running into the room and has an issue. Now they call you and, and you still have this space around you to, for yourself. So I'm not sure what's what exactly. I just know that if I focus on the word count for the day, if I just live in that moment and say, you know, I've got to write 500 to 1,000 words today, that's good enough. Then I just focus on that. And in the past, actually before my mother died and before I had my own heart issues, I filled every minute. I was going here, going there. I was going to like schedule the time that I wrote, but then I would go off and do something else. And I didn't have this kind of time around things, bigger blocks of time. I have bigger chunks now. I think I didn't give myself that breathing space. And now I try to schedule a few big things a week as opposed to in a day, maybe a few things in a month as opposed to a week. Just not forcing yourself, knowing yourself better. And so in a way, you're just giving yourself more permission for yourself, really. I thought I always made time for writing, but if I suddenly felt an urge to do something else, I would go do that and put it off. And now I think this is the biggest thing, actually. I mean, I'm glad you asked that question. I think it's being more comfortable with being uncomfortable. Ooh, can you be a little bit more explicit and tell us what that means to you? Yeah, I think I had a great coping mechanism of avoiding things that were uncomfortable. And I think that when my mom got sick, it was like the first thing that I really couldn't turn away from. And so I think that I got more, the truth was I couldn't avoid it. And so now in writing, if something's really hard, I don't think, oh, I'm a shitty writer. I should just, what am I doing trying to write this? Like I, instead of going through all of that, that I might've before, I try to just sit with it and try to find another way in, read somebody else's work, to be inspired, and just try without thinking I can put it off and do it another time or I should come up with a whole new idea. So in yoga, what you've just described is very yogic. We talk a lot about being able to sit in a certain amount of discomfort, not just through the physical practice, that's what most people associate it with, but also through the other practices that we use in yoga. Mm -hmm. And it's that idea of the sitting in the discomfort, the natural initial impulse might be to run away or to shut down or come out of the pose or get up from whatever it is you're doing. But it's the ability to sit and be with it that always in some ways can open the other door. 
have you had those moments? That's again, a great image. I've just learned that if I wait a little longer, then the answer comes. Then you also talked about how you had, I guess, a habit of turning away from conflict or challenging situations. Mm -hmm. Do you find that you're no longer doing that? And how has that changed perhaps even your interpersonal relationships with your husband, your children, your friends? You're right to ask that question in terms of it. It's just not easy. I still, if there's something that makes me uncomfortable, I want to avoid it. But I also, there's also a part of me that thinks that I'm, I should do it anyway. So I've had to think about picking and choosing the things that are worth my time and energy so that if it's uncomfortable, I need to look at why and whether it's worth it for me to continue to pursue this, whether it's a project I'm taking on or whatever it is. Like I just have to think about why I'm doing it. In terms of friends and family, I've gotten better. So with my husband, I I feel I can more easily say what I mean. And we've just mellowed out like two, you know, now that we've gone through all of this. And then with my children, I'm constantly, we just talk more, which is great. If you could pick one song that would kind of speak to your life, sum up your life, resonate with your life, what would that song be? Oh my gosh, that's a hard one. Yeah, nobody finds this one easy. (laughs) (laughs) How how much time do we have left? Um, You have all the time you need. (laughs) Wow, there are so many songs. And you're saying it, it sort of sums up my life? Yeah, or resonates with your life. Maybe there are snatches of it that speaks to you in a way where you felt as if the songwriter was writing about you. I play piano. I have my childhood piano. I just play these old songs from muscle memory, mm-hmm. whether it's Debussy's Claire de Lune or, or some Beethoven. I just play them. It's so great because of that muscle memory that somehow I can't, I mean, I don't practice enough to be able to play, but my body knows, my fingers know. I think as you know, in this conversation, I have never talked about my dad in quite the same way that I have here. You, you've made me kind of open up to those things. And so um, I guess I'm just sharing that bit, uh, another bit of what I do at home with you. That was one of the best answers to that question, by the way. And you're actually not alone when you say that you got to talk more candidly, perhaps, than you had, I don't know, perhaps thought was possible. And I think it's great. And I'm so grateful that you were able to share so openly with me and with the listeners. I know that they're going to find you incredibly thoughtful and inspiring. And then can you tell them? the title of your first book that they can still buy. Yes. And Juliana, I mean, really, it's because of you. It's because of your, of who you are that you allow people to speak like this. I'm usually a little more guarded. So I really appreciate this. So the novel is called A Small Revolution. And um, you can find it on bookshop.org or, you know, anywhere. 
And hopefully, I think they're going to change the title, but in 2023, the second one will come out. And at the moment, moment it's called The Apology. And you'll have to come back and tell us about that when the book is released. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Yuliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience when I got tired of waiting. Then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they gon' ask me why I do it. I'ma say this because we gon' be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack. Focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, would have. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave your comments on the platform where you get your podcasts. If you think you have a Phoenix tale, please send us a note on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you just want to stay connected to Phoenix Tales, once again, you can go on to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get all the latest updates.